This week, guess who I'm talking to? Jodie Kidd. And what a woman she is. Renowned supermodel, racing driver, TV personality, and now pub landlady. Jodie's story has many surprises and is full of such bravery and determination that I'm completely in awe of her zest for life and her drive to succeed at everything she turns her hand to. What I love is how vulnerable Jodie is in this podcast, telling us the real story behind her journey, how she had such a time battling her mental health to ending up standing on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro with no training. Jodie's story is a remarkable one and a reminder to us all to just keep going and that with passion and determination, anything is possible. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from the kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and asked them to share theirs. With thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Jodie. Gosh, I am thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to you because this is going to be a real surprise to some people because you have had obviously the supermodel career that we know about, but you've had a TV career, you've had a world-class rider career, you've had race cars. You're now the landlady of the village pub. I mean, what a journey. And welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Hi. Oh my goodness. When you kind of put it like that, wow, what an absolute kind of eclectic, mad, bonkers career. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? You're almost like the eclectic cat lady. Do you know what I mean? Who's collected all these absolute versatile... Do you know what I mean? One cat would be called a racing driver, the other a supermodel, the other, you know, it's the most unbelievable group of things that you have achieved. And I know that you're not going to be a stranger to this community because you so kindly at Christmas, wrapped up in your scarf, in your pub, opening up when you just could. You sent us a message for our small business stories from your beautiful pub, The Half Moon. Mm -hmm. It was just at that moment, wasn't it, that you were able just to open for that tiny slither of time. Three weeks. That must have been a wonderful feeling. It was wonderful, but yet unbelievably painful because we decided, because we're in the middle of nowhere, the pub is my local. It's about five miles away, so it's far enough away that, you know, you have to behave. That you're not in it every night. Exactly, or walking home. So yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful 500-year-old pub. And I just noticed lots of little 
pubs in little villages around where I live and where I was brought up, I was born and bred in this area, were closing and being turned into houses. They're so important pubs. They're not just places, and especially rurally, where you go and you congregate or, mm. you know, you get that one time to socialise or you get to go and celebrate something because you haven't got a massive array of different mm. restaurants and things like that. This mm. is the people that come to our pub, you know, they literally share their 50th, their 60th, their wedding anniversaries. It's their go-to. So in this period of time, must have been even more important, oh, right? So you must be like a modern day community centre almost in this time yeah. because... Yeah. Those three weeks you had, you must have been packed. We really wanted to open and we wanted to, mm. when we all came out of lockdown, I can't remember, was it the July, the beginning or end or something, yep. where actually pubs and restaurants got to open for a bit. And we just couldn't financially get the whole team back in, up and running when it was still so volatile and we didn't know what was going on with the pandemic and to get everyone off furlough. And so we just thought, right, I think there's going to be another big wobble, which yep. we are now seriously in and witnessing, yeah. that I said to get all the team off furlough, to get the whole place up and running again, because people forget to get an old pub like that up and running again, it takes thousands and thousands of pounds because they're like living, breathing not people, but, you know, they're characters. And so we made that decision. Then we got to, obviously, the second wave started hitting. And then they said, right, let's try and have a little bit of a Christmas. We need to try and get some revenue in. So we did. And we put a big marquee up so we could, you know, abide by all the laws of social distancing and your two metres between tables and la, la, la. So we put a lot of effort in thinking that, you know, would be open for a little bit. So we got about two and a half weeks trading and then um, we got told at, at Boxing Day that we were going into tier four and then, you know, obviously the 1st of January or major lockdown. Or... So it was a shame. I want to actually come back to this, the full circle here, because where your pub is, is actually where it started, where you grew up in Sussex, yeah. surrounded by the great British countryside, yes. your family childhood. You were born into a family of quite high High achievers, if I could say it that Very way. Your so. father was an international show jumper. Yep. It feels that your childhood was quite competitive, but also had a sense and a, a love of adventure. Would that be right? Absolutely. I mean, I was so lucky to have been brought up in, in West Sussex, in the countryside. So my childhood was, you know, an amazing, loving childhood, kind of playing in haystacks. And, you know, it was a working farm. So my whole family were very successful, very competitive. My brother was uh, on the British team for polo. My sister was on the British team for dresser. My dad was on the British team for show jumping. So seriously horsey, seriously oh competitive, <laughs> action-packed. You know, as soon as the sun came up, we were out that door till it was pitch black. Then we were being shouted to come back in and have our dinner. You know, so it was a wonderful, wonderful kind of wholesome childhood. And that's hopefully what I'm now giving to my little lad, my nine-year-old, you know, where we're growing vegetables and being outside as much as we can. And I can't be thankful enough enough for that space yeah. during this last year and this horrendous time that we're going through. Going back to your beginning, your family had an affinity with Barbados yes. and your grandmother 
bought a house there in the 1950s Mm -hmm. and it became a family home that you visited each year. So much so that your family relocated there and that you were quite young and you attended, they sent you back to boarding school um, in the UK from the age of 11. Yeah. That must have been a huge change. Was this a happy place for you? Did you mind being sent back to the UK? It was, yes. I wanted to, they tried to get me to school with them because my parents actually moved out there when I was nine full time. They tried to get me because I was the youngest. They put my brother and sister into boarding school and my brother was in boarding school from seven. And I just remember these really terrible scenes Mm. of Jack being put in a car screaming and crying and literally dragging by his nails to be taken to boarding school. And it's such an early age, but I think it was, you know, during the 70s and 80s, it was kind of like my dad went to Harrow, my brother went to Harrow, you know, so it was kind of like there was this pattern and my parents thought that that was the right thing to do and children must be, you know, seen but not heard kind of era. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so I just remember these horrors of poor Jack at seven at such a young age and I just can't even imagine because Indy's nine and I can't even speak spend seven hours away from him. Um, So they wanted me to go to school in Barbados and I just wanted to come back to the UK because I was just starting doing the pony rounds for show jumping. And my dream was to emulate, I suppose, my father's career as a show jumper. And, you know, as a little girl, I just had pictures of John Whitaker and Milton on the wall. And, and you know, that was my total dream. So I wanted to get into the pony kind of circuit. And I just got a really, really good little pony. And I was doing the 13 twos. And I was actually being really competitive. And I was winning classes and used to get my little four pounds or five pounds that used to win a class and, you know, and then tear off down to the sweet shop. But (laughs) already ingrained to me at an early age was this kind of independence and this competitive side and this real kind of drive. And so I wanted to come back and carry on my very young career as a, I think I was 10 at this time, 10 or 11. And that's what I wanted to do. So they said, right, well, it's the choice of being with us or going to boarding school. So I went, well, I'll do a boarding school and I'll come out at the weekends. And then this wonderful lady that had been part of my grandmother's life, and she was literally the right-hand woman of my grandmother, who's now living with me, who's 90 years old. And so she's been with us coming up to 70 odd years and is my guardian yeah she took over the role of kind of bringing me up and so she used to pick me up from school in a little lorry and we used to go gallivanting all around the countryside with my little ponies and I was making a business I was basically buying all the really difficult ponies that used to buck everyone off then put all the work in train them and then sell them so I went through quite a few ponies and was quite successful and was making thousands and thousands of pounds <laughs> at, you know, 12, 13, 14 years. Training ponies at 12 and 13. Let's go into your life-changing moment where you were spotted by a modelling agency yeah. and you were 15 yeah. and my son's 15. So I know how young this is. And you basically burst onto the scene. It was the 90s. You really embodied this fashion ideal of the time. It must have been 
crazily surreal and you were so young. What was this time like for you? Because you were really a schoolgirl. Yeah, well, it all kind of happened because I was just transitioning from ponies to horses. And at 15, you can't ride ponies on a competitive level in the BSJA. So I just bought my first youngster horse and I kept on taking it to shows. It kept on rubbing its tail because the lorry I had was a little pony lorry and I didn't have enough money to buy a horse lorry. That was where I kind of got spotted and then I put that on the back burner because that happened four or five months before when I was visiting my parents in Barbados. I'd also just come out of school with one exam. I mean, this is what dad says and he's like, I'm so proud I spent all of my money on putting my children through private education. My older brother got one GCSE, he got an A in art. My sister got one GCSE, she got a B in art. And I got one GCSE, I got a C in art. (laughs) He's like, it's the proudest moment. Do you know how much money I've just literally put on a bonfire for you (laughs) idiots to come out of school with nothing? Because if you work that out, that was very expensive per art GCSE. Wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Oh my God, don't. It makes well, I just thought I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to make this up to him. So anyway, so this was my transition into horses. I didn't have a lorry big enough. Someone said, you know, you're really tall, you're kind of quirky looking. And it was kind of like the heroin chic androgynous. They'd just come out of the really curvy kind of supermodel era. And it was now kind of Kate Moss and Stella Tennant. It was all kind of very tall. So they said, you should just come and have some pictures and I think mum said to me look you can earn some good money you'll be able to get the lorry so I thought right I'm going to do modelling for a couple of months get the lorry and then get back out to the countryside (laughs) and get going on my dream that slightly didn't take that turn did it within two months I was opening Marc Jacobs in New York I was you know being flown around on Concord I was on covers of Vogue magazine I mean it was just extraordinary and I had to get rid of my horse which was really painful and make that decision of where am I going to go and because modelling was so Mm. much fun because I was the youngest of five so I was very mature at 15 because I also know exactly what you say holes by 15 is very young Mm. and I would never let Indy at 15 Mm. loose Mm. in the world but I think as being the youngest of five because my parents lived abroad I used to get on as as a little girl on aeroplanes, go out and see them and come back and be solo traveling. I was okay with it. Okay. And so off I went, you know, moved to London, then I moved to New York, and then just had the most unbelievable 10 years of craziness. Tell me about any standout moments that you now, as Jodie today, look back at and you go, Are you joking me? There was quite a few. I think probably my most amazing moment was when Alexander McQueen first went over to Paris to take over being the, the head designer for Givenchy. And this was a really big move for this massive French couturier house to have someone as controversial as Alexander McQueen become their Mm. head designer. So he did his first show, which was a couture show, and he asked me to open it. It was the most extraordinary kind of experience. And I had actually worked at Givenchy lots of times before doing couture and kind of being there with the other designers before. And it was, it's very, very Parisian, very just 
extraordinary experience. You have like 15 different seamstresses kind of running around you doing this intricate needlework and <gasps> beadwork and kind of embroidery on your body as you're standing there and they're kind of like making this dress on you. And then suddenly... Alexander's there and they're not used to him. And so he comes in and I've got this amazing, huge white and gold embroidered jacket with this ginormous long train that comes out and it's just stunning. And I think it would have taken thousands and thousands of hours for these wonderful ladies upstairs. And he just came in with this big pair of scissors and just like cut into this jacket, (gasps) cut it in half and did... And their faces... I mean, it was just... And he just created something. What do you have to do at that point in time? Oh, you're just basically a glorified pin cushion. You're just getting pinned. Like, you're, ow, ow, ow! (laughs) But, you know, they're creating art on you. Especially someone like Alexander, you know, he liked to get your character. So that would be the Jodie dress or that would be the Kate dress or the Naomi dress. He would build that kind of dress for you. Mm. So it was this moment of these poor women's faces. But he then suddenly they got it. They were like, wow, this man is a genius. So anyway, so open the show and it went down a storm. And, you know, and and I've had some wonderful, wonderful experiences of walking and opening opening shows from John Galliano to Karen to Calvin Klein to Valentino. I mean, you know, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful (laughs) dresses, experiences. But I think that was the number one where Alexander gave that honour to me. Now, more than ever, people are taking control of their lives and forging their own path, following their passions to build a life they truly love. Founders have a unique spirit that sets them apart, a blend of drive, passion, ambition, and self-belief. People who have Metal. Metal is the free digital business account by NatWest. It's built for small businesses, side hustlers, startups, and freelancers to start, run, and grow. It gives you the tools to stay on top of your books, create and send invoices, and manage your day-to-day transactions all from your phone. Whatever stage of your journey you're at, you can apply for a free account in minutes. Find out more and get the free app at metal.co.uk slash holly. Metal is for sole traders and limited companies with up to two owners. Eligibility criteria apply. Every week, we give away an ad break to small businesses. We're passionate about amplifying the voices of those who run their own enterprises across the UK. So without further ado, here's this week's independent ad break winner. At Unati, we offer you the power to give back to the community and the environment each time you shop with us. On Unati's online store, unati.com, you can find a hand-picked selection of eco-friendly fashion, bath and body and home decor products made by UK-based environmentally conscious small businesses and social enterprises that employ people who are challenging physical or learning difficulties. Unati is derived from the Hindi word Unnati, which means advancement, and that is what we stand for as a brand. We are here to encourage conscious living among our consumers and also give an equal opportunity to people who are challenging various kinds of difficulties in their lives. To know more about Unati, the brands we work with, and to shop for the products that we curate, 
visit unati.com now that is u n n a a t y.com thank you and for all founders whatever stage of your journey head to metal.co.uk/holly to learn more and download the free app now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration there was a lot of scrutiny particularly about your weight mm. but this was a real moment that i can remember actually when it all sort of started how did you cope with it i know that it did affect you mentally god it was a horrific time so if you can imagine that i kind of came out of a background of being county athletics county swimming county lacrosse show jumping every weekend, you know, I was just sport, 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 horses, 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 you know, just super fit. Mm -hmm. And then went straight into basically not doing zero fitness, flying around the world and, you know, alone, loneliness, massive, massive thing, even though it's a very glamorous, what seems on the outside. It's a lot of down, a lot of rejection, a lot of kind of negative points to those little positives that everyone kind of focuses on. Mm. And so I kind of lost all my muscle and I just was bony and tall and six foot two and just gangly and and then started getting bad press about saying that I was anorexic, which I'd never, I've never had an eating disorder in my life. I had anxiety. So what happened was I probably had two wonderful years in modeling and then started getting, didn't want to leave home and, and move to New York and had to live in an apartment on my own. And it was just, you know, I was 17 and, and all my mates were kind of going to Edinburgh University and going to pubs and getting pissed and shagging and God knows what they were doing. Yeah. And I was kind of like in this really surreal world, totally alone. And so I started not sleeping very well. You know, one day I was in Tokyo, next day I was in Mexico, the next day I was in New York, you know, so I never got any rhythm. I'd never got any routine. So started getting insomnia, anxiety. Then I just didn't want to eat because I had anxiety. And I knew whenever I finished work, I would have to come back home or back to the hotel eat, go to bed and then leave at five o'clock, six o'clock the next morning. And I knew that I wasn't going to sleep. So I was in a panic about not being able to sleep. So then for I didn't really want to sit down and eat because I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to sleep, I'm not going to sleep. Mm. And then I got into this kind of like hole where I wasn't putting nutrition into my body as I, because I wasn't hungry, I wasn't sleeping. So all of those things that I know we need, especially for mental health, yes. exercise, eating well, all of these things I wasn't doing and I wasn't understanding why I was feeling so bad. So I went to the doctor, I was going, I'm getting these sweaty palms, I'm, I can't breathe, I feel like my heart's going to, I literally feel like I'm going to die and they put me on beta blockers, they said get a brown paper bag and breathe it, which is like the worst thing you can do. Mm. No one talked about anxiety or slight depression. You know, I was still working like mad, but the thing was I was getting thinner. I was getting thinner because I was still working and I was still away and I was still... So this kind of really dark circle was going on and I just didn't know how to get out. I didn't know how to kind of heal myself. The doctors didn't know. And so I got skinnier and skinnier and skinnier and then I was working more and more and more and I was just like, wow, Wow, this has just got to stop. This is not me. And and then I remember I had to. I was opening the couture for Chanel, 
and I had my French agent and I moved, by this time I'd moved back to the UK and moved out to the countryside because I thought, right, that hopefully moving back out into the countryside, I'm going to, it's going to cure me a bit, but I was still modelling yep. and I was still wobbly. And so my French agent was phoning me up saying, you've got a nine o'clock plane, get on that, you're opening it, Carl needs you here. And I was like, I can't physically leave the house. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And they were like, don't be fixed, Jim. I'm going to send someone there to get you out the house. And I was like, I can't leave this house. And so and that was the last show that I ever did. I just couldn't do it. I mean, it's the last, what was the one that broke the camel's back. I just said, I can't leave the house. Yeah. And that was when I just went, this is just not for me. Got to stop. And this was at the height of my career. You know, it was just, it was about to go even more stratospheric. And um, I just wanted to be normal. I wanted a normal job. Mm -hmm. I wanted, which of course I couldn't, because then on the other side, I was getting all the bad press from the media. I would like walk out in the garden, there would be paparazzi hanging over the wall. There would be, you know, I'd go to the shop, I'd be chased down the road, high-speed car chases, you know, as a mm. as a 20-year-old girl. Terrifying things that the paparazzi were doing at the time. Thankfully, they've calmed down a bit. And it was just a really horrible, wobbly place. So I just gave it all in and I just said, right, I'm going to start growing veg again and God knows what career I'm going to do. I have no idea. I've just got to take care of myself. And that was the end of my modelling career. <laughs> Thank you for telling us that. It strikes me when I listen to founders' stories that sometimes, and I've experienced it myself, we don't know how to get out of our vicious circles that we find ourselves in. And somehow the most simplest thing is you just stopped. Mm. You just said no. Yeah. And actually, you could have probably even made that up, that yeah. that was how you were going to do it. You know, how do I exit this slowly? But actually, sometimes things need to break. Yeah. And potentially, it was taken out of your hands. Your body, your mind yes. took it as a, you know, this is what's going to happen, Jodie, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And in a way, thank God. Yeah. And we look back at these times, don't we? And we think, I'm glad the wheels came off yes. just then, because if they had kept going, God knows what would have happened to me. Absolutely. You had this moment you needed to heal. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, you took an extraordinary challenge mm. to raise money for Help the Heroes. <laughs> and I actually couldn't even believe that you did this, <laughs> yes. by the way. You took on 567 mm -hmm. mile ride through Burma. Yeah. And then, yeah. because you'd like to top it off with something, you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah. I'm wondering how much that signified you needed to do something different. What was that challenge like for you? And did it start to heal you? Yeah. I mean, I was already on the process from, you know, and going back to that moment where I said, no, we now know that that's the most powerful thing that you can possibly do and say mm -hmm. and how empowering it is for you and how if I hadn't have said that as you said God knows where I'd be so from that moment my body went good now I'm going to start helping you now you're going to start doing exercise because that's what I was really I wanted to be out there. I wanted to be riding again I want to be so I'd started doing more fitness I started growing my own veg and eating properly again and cooking and all of these things so I'd started going in the right direction and I was popping back doing bits of tv and bits of presenting kind of doing a few kind of fashion-y kind of shows and a few modeling things but never going back to that couture 
Pret-a-Porter doing all of the catwalks. Mm-hmm. So I went, do you know what? It's about time I've taken most of my life. I've just taken, I've taken, I've taken. I've been so spoiled. I've been so lucky. I've got to start giving back. And I had a friend in the military that was suffering a bit from mental health. And in the military, it's a very taboo thing to have depression or PTSD or something you don't talk about. So Help for Heroes started this kind of part of the umbrella that was called Hidden Wounds, and it's all supporting soldiers with PTSD, anxiety, depression. And so I said, right, I'm going to go off and I'm going to try and raise a quarter of a million pounds for this by doing really crazy things. You know, to raise that amount of money... People were kind of like, they want more than just running a marathon or doing the three peaks or something like that. So I was like, (laughs) right, well, I'm going to re-ride the whole of the railway that they built in the Second World War, which they made a movie called The Bridge Over the River Kwai. And it's all of going up through Burma and Indonesia and terrible the amount of deaths that happened on this building, this railroad from prisoners of war. And so I'm going to recreate this journey, which she said was over 500 miles. And the most horrendous thing was that every sleeper that we went along on this journey, every single sleeper was a person that died building this railroad. It was a very tough ride, but we did that. And then I was like, right, I need to do more. I'm going to do Kilimanjaro. (laughs) Oh, God. I'd never climbed a mountain in my life. I'd never done any kind of major hiking. Normally, I'm on the back of a horse and the horse is doing all the hard work. So I thought, right, I'm going to climb this mountain. Cheryl Cole did it. Can't be that hard. I was like, holy moly, it was hardcore. (laughs) It was really, really tough. But anyway, so completed it and summited it and then came down. And then I did another thing called the Big Battlefield Bike Ride, which is another 500-mile bicycle ride all across the Western Front of our trenches from the First World War. So, yeah, I did this whole year of just... Raising money, raising money, raising money, raising money to try and give back. I kind of needed to do it. I try and do something every year to raise money for a particular charity. I think it's really important that I personally have that balance. How is it possible that you actually competed in some of the most prestigious racing tracks across the globe (laughs) and you won the fastest lap on Top Gear in 2003. (laughs) Um, And once again, this sort of determination and this adventure that you, maybe from your childhood, this thing that was built in you, just kept you going and kept you challenging yourself. Mm. And it must have been really quite another moment where it was maybe a male-dominated world. What kept you determined to change? Was it because you, are you challenged if someone says, I don't believe you can do this? What is your thing that you go, right, now I'm going to go and race cars competitively? The whole racing car thing just came totally out of the blue. I'd only only really got my driving licence. And so I was never really into cars at all and all was my family massively we always like the one horsepower not the 500 <laughs> I had a really good friend that was doing this thing called the gumball and it's like a big rally where they have like a hundred cars and they go from Paris to Istanbul or something and it's a couple of thousand miles and five days and it's a fun kind of group of people all just getting together and just doing this trek or journey or rally or whatever you want to call it. And so they were going from New York to Los Angeles. And she said, why didn't you get a car with a group of friends and come and join us? And I was like, yeah, 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 no problem. Anyway, so I got a car. 
and we all went across. It was brilliant. I'd never been across America and we went to Memphis and we went to, you know, all these amazing places in Arizona. And it was so cool. And to see America and do the ultimate kind of road trip. And then I flew back to the UK to do an award ceremony. They asked me to give an award at the GQ Awards. And I sat next to Jeremy Clarkson and I went, oh, God, you're the car guy. I mean, never really watched Top Gear. It's kind of not on the record (laughs) button for modelling kind of fraternity. And so I said, oh, I've just done this rally. And there was Ferraris and there was S40s and amazing, beautiful cars and things like that. And he said, I didn't realise very tall blonde girls like cars. And I said, oh God, that was beautiful. There was a Conan seg. And he was going, oh, okay. She knows what she's talking about. So he said, come down and do my show. And I was like, no problem. Didn't think anything of it. Then went off and life carried on (laughs) and got this phone call. They said, right, Top Gear want you to come down. And I was like, oh God, whatever. Okay. So I just turned up there. I had no idea really. I had to go around the track. And so that you get in the car with a stig and the stig takes you around once so you know where you're going. Then you have to go around on your own with the stig to make sure you're not going to kill yourself. And then you do a couple of laps and that's it. And so <laughs> off I went and I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. I just loved it. So they said after three laps, right, get out. And then you have to wait for the rest of the day to do the studio bit. And then Jeremy basically announced that I'd beat JK and everyone. And it was just like, I love this. And so quietly went off and got my racing license and then got picked up by Maserati and ended up racing for five years in Italy, uh, racing for the Maserati Trofeo and doing the Mila Milia and doing some of the most iconic races. What I'm trying to draw from this is that you, you really did, from this stage that you are opening up, what only a minuscule amount of people on this planet have ever experienced, you know, these catwalks, You then go into challenging yourself mentally and physically with your charity work. You then go and you had already your horse life and then you go into racing cars. Did you ever think at the time, I'm not allowed to do this? Every time I did something new... I had no idea what I was doing. I was throwing myself into the deepest of all deep ends and then doing it quite publicly as well. Mm. Took a lot of balls to do it. I try not to think about it. I just approached what was in front of me and approached it with a million percent. And I watched, I learnt, I recreated what I learnt. I then was very, very disciplined you know, super, super immersed myself into whatever that was and then just said, right, you've got to do the best that you can, that it might not be the best, but you've got to keep pushing yourself. It was incredible that even though I never knew that I could be that quick or could ride a bike that long or do over 5,000 metres in climbing or, you know, all of those things, the mind and the body Mm. is such an extraordinary thing that if you don't challenge it, you never know how incredibly brilliant our bodies are. Mm. You've just got to believe in yourself. It's so important and just grab it, grab it by the balls and go, let's do it. And if I'm crap, then we'll just reevaluate that at that point. There's no point worrying about what's happening, you know, next week or next month or next year. I mean, you can be drama World War Three, but I guarantee it's going to be okay. It does sound that you allowed the universe to open doors. Yes. And you went with it. 
it's interesting that then you come along again. So from Jeremy saying, oh, I didn't know girls like cars, which he absolutely nailed. You then went on to become a guest on some of our beloved shows, including Strictly Come Dancing, MasterChef, just to name a couple. And this was also around the same time that you became a mum to your son. It's a life-changing moment becoming a mum. And certainly, you know, you were in the public eye as well. It's tough, you know, if you have other things going on in your life. What was that time like? And did you feel pressure to be a perfect mum? Yes. And so many of my friends, you know, that's just what they strived to be. And for me, because I think I'd just been through so much BS in my life, I just got to a point where I was just like, do you know what? I'm just going to be me and I'm not going to get this right And I'm going to fail too many times if I have too many high expectations of being a mum. And I just went with it. But I definitely did not abide to those high expectations of you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to. If I had poo-poo day, I mean, I would have a poo-poo day and I would just go, no, no. No, this is, you know, that powerful word of going, mm. no, I've, Indy's been up all night. He's, you know, I, I've just come down in my work clothes. He's just pooed all over me. I'm going to do whatever I can, but I can't quite get there yet. And da, 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 da. you know, I just mold everything around being a mum, but not being a perfect mum in any type of way. I think because I'd been so glamorous in the modelling world and worn the most extraordinary things, it's kind of like I've done that, I've been there, I just want to be us and just keep working, keep grinding, being the best parent you could possibly be. I was a kind of a single mum bringing up Ind on my own and it was hard but really incredible. I mean, this little boy that I'm just looking out the window now and he's kicking a little football around and it's the proudest kind of moment that, you know, I've fucked up so many times and I've learnt the hard way on everything. And just, you know, and I'm just looking at him now and he's just got a good heart and he's just super kind and he's a lovely boy. And so I'm just like, you know what? We did it. You just get there. It's okay. You know, it's okay. (laughs) And you know what? One of the things I'm thinking about you is that when enough is enough, you have got a great sort of compass deep inside of you. When the world of modelling was going to take you down, you knew that that wasn't for you. When the world was obsessed with being perfect, you knew that wasn't for you. Yeah. But you slightly had a sort of an ability to have that confidence to say, actually, I mean, don't get me wrong, you nearly broke. (laughs) But you (laughs) did come back to knowing that actually that is something that is not right for you and that you were going to do it your way. And that's something I'm picking up that you've really created such a unique world for yourself. And let's just add now to the last part of your eclectic career. (laughs) You moved back to the country and you surprised everybody again when you bought the local pub. Yes. This was the pub that you had lots of happy memories from. It's actually where you spent your 21st birthday. Yes. You loved this idea, didn't you, of community. And that's actually what spurred you on to do it. How have you ended up becoming a landlady? 
Oh, my God. I mean, it was just, it is absolutely ridiculous. And it was just two friends were en route to Goodwood to go racing. <laughs> and so they said, oh, Jodes, we're driving quite close. Come and have a drink or whatever, we're en route. So I went and met them and we went to Chris Evans has a pub just down the road from us. And so we thought, oh, that would be a nice place to go. And so we were sitting there and having a cup of coffee and a piece of cake and... Um, and they were going, God, it would be lovely to have a pub like this. And I went, oh, funny that. My local is really beautiful. It's up for sale. So we went to the Half Moon and they went, oh, God, it's absolutely gorgeous. And they were like, right, Jodes, let's do it. We'll kind of run all the financy side because you're rubbish. You kind of do the whole front of it and do the team and the menus and because yeah. I did MasterChef. And so, you know, I thought I knew everything about cooking. Yeah. Not. <laughs> So they literally phoned me up. They said, right, we've taken over the lease. Oh, my goodness. And then I was like, okay, well, what do we, where do we go? How do I find chefs? Where do I buy beer? I was like, do I go to Sainsbury's? I have no idea where I buy beer from. And they would go, we don't know. We said, we'll help you the whole financial side. And you've got to do this side. So anyway, so it was kind of like this realisation of going... Oh, you've really fucked this one up, haven't you, kiddo? Where do we even go? (laughs) So thankfully, I went to my friend who owns a pub down the road and I said, I've got the half moon and um, I really need help. (laughs) So very slowly, very painfully, we went through kind of renovations and building a team and opening and and then realising that the direction that we were going to go in because it's a very rural pub and I thought, right, we're going to make it really spectacular, three rosettes or maybe a Michelin star, you know, these are my dreams. Yeah. That wasn't going to work because we needed like 18 people in the kitchen and the kitchen could only fit like three people in. So it was this kind of like going, okay, let's not go in this direction. Let's go in a different direction. And But, you know, the one thing that we did do was that we wanted to save it for the community and we wanted to get it back for the people in Curdford. You know, the first thing that I wrote down on a piece of paper is that I want everything to be supporting local, you know, local producers, local suppliers, local um, breweries, sparkling wine so that was kind of like our real ethos which we've stuck to of course it's been you know a bit tough at times but we're getting there we were coming into our third year which was where you know all the startup costs are out the window all the kind of teething problems year three is where actually you might make some money yes and then we got hit by the pandemic so it's just been like (gasps) but you know it's a total love thing. This is a love project. We're going to make it work. And I've got a brilliant, brilliant guy called Gavin. Without him, we couldn't have kept this going. I spoke to Robin, who is the creator of the Pig Hotel Group. And he was talking about how the hospitality industry hasn't been supported in this period of time. No. What do you feel is going to be the answer to this? It's literally getting to the point where when we come out of this pandemic and they open up the hospitality industry, it will be like everyone will want to come out and celebrate And there's going to be nowhere to go to because there will be no hospitality left in this country or, you know, I think a lot of other countries will massively Mm. suffer as well. There's been one thing that they've brought the VAT down. So normally we're at 20% and they've brought that down to seven and a half, which um, is what they normally are in Europe. But Rishi has said he's only going to do it through the pandemic. But I think it's going to take such a long time to catch up. So I think we need to keep the VAT down. And I think that should be just flat 
for a long time, five years, maybe yep. even longer, yep. you know, looking yep. at beer tax, getting beer tax. We're paying such high rates, higher than any other European country, almost double. So I think we need to talk about cutting down all the taxes on alcohol. Also, the you know, the furlough that they say is going to end. If we're not going to be going back to August, they're going to have to do it until we can basically open doors again. year together with our friends at three we're working to make business dreams come true share your dreams on social using the hashtag holly and co dreamer and who knows what will happen three understands it's been a tough time for businesses so they're offering their business price promise a promise that if you find a better deal they'll beat it not only that, I love that they offer up to £500 of benefits from specialist partners to help your business thrive. Head to 3.co.uk forward slash terms for terms and conditions. Now, here's a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. The most recognisable scientist of our age, Stephen Hawking, holds an iconic status. The eldest of four children, Stephen was born into an eccentric family of thinkers in Oxford. Dinner was often eaten with each of the Hawkings intently reading a book. The family car was an old London taxi and their home was a three-storey fixer-upper that never quite got fixed. Stephen was recognised as a bright student and after graduating from the University of Oxford, his fascination with cosmology led him to Cambridge. Very sadly, at just 21, Stephen was diagnosed with motor neurone disease and was given the devastating news that he had just two years to live. Yet despite these challenges, his brilliant mind and incredible determination gave him the ability to overcome all obstacles in pursuit of his dreams. Continuing his pioneering work on black holes and the theory of relativity and writing many books along the way, including A Brief History of Time, Stephen's groundbreaking work has helped make science accessible to everyone. Stephen defied his doctor's predictions, living for a further 55 years. And in 2014, The Theory of Everything was released, a film depicting his life. A scientific superstar, Stephen left behind the legacy of a remarkable mind and a truly extraordinary life. Don't forget to share your own business dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. And to find out more about their business plans, search Three Means Business. Now, back to Conversations of Inspiration. We have to, if we can, support all of our local pubs if they're doing takeaways, whatever yeah. they're doing. Yeah. Before you tap on Deliveroo or Just Eat, please go and support your independence. And tell me, Jodie, what would you say to anyone right now having to face in to some really challenging times when they need to change direction in their life. Now, you've done this. Mm -hmm. What would you say to anyone about following their dreams and trying something new? It comes down to bravery. And it's just that taking that one leap. And that one leap might be so terrifying because we 
get kind of caught up and we get stuck in our ways and our routines and our kind of patterns. And the thing about the pandemic is it has broken so many of these routines and patterns. And so if there is going to be a time, now is the time to leap in. Just go for it and go for it with your chin held high. And if it doesn't work, then that's not the end of the world. Then you can just try something else. But I think once you start getting that bravery of just exploring where these other avenues, these other places that you might have not even contemplated, you have no idea. You might completely fall in love or you might find a new thing that you're brilliant at and that can be so inspiring for you um so it's just taking that one leap when you think about your world and what you're doing and what makes you jump out of bed in the morning do you think this is it for you now are there other dreams are there other adventures we've got two startups going on in this house at the moment my partner's got one which is a really exciting one all about mental health and then i've got a startup that i'm working on all around school food and kids i can't divulge too much kind of along the lines of what marcus rashford is doing but in a jody way i was lucky to have a childhood where you know i was fed well but then when I got to looking after myself and feeding myself, it was amazing how your body really, really reacts to having some good food. I went into a spiral because I didn't eat. And this wasn't because I didn't have a choice, let alone people that want to eat. Just that difference of getting some good nutrients, getting good health into kids is so important and giving everyone food. I mean, it's God's given right on this planet that everyone should have good food. So yes, I'm on it. I'm going to be campaigning and doing good things soon. Well, let me know if you ever need any cheerleading because I'd love to cheerlead you along <laughs> yes. the way. Um, I end this interview um, with the analogy that running a business is like being on an epic roller coaster. And I like to picture you in a couture dress. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd love to pitch you with your red lips and maybe holding a pint with the half moon etched on your pint glass. What would you say has been your biggest low so far? Oh, I think my biggest low is definitely just fallen in love way too easy. I've left myself open too many times. And it's what I'm actually saying to Indy because he's such a big heart and he just loves everything. And, you know, one day I know that that's going to come back and hit him a bit, mm. you know, on the forehead and that life sometimes is not as wonderful as we want it to be. There's some not good people out there and, you know, you've got to prepare yourself for that. And I think I loved too many, trusted too many, and that's definitely come back and really shocked me about some people's behaviour and some businesses and the way some businesses have treated me and things like that. That would be the low point of maybe people using and what a shock that mm -hmm. is with someone that wants to give gets used so much. I can only imagine. And what would you say conversely your greatest high has been? Definitely Indio. I've got plenty of friends that find it very, very difficult. And so I feel completely blessed. I've been able to have a little boy who's nine and is my best friend and has put everything into perspective, has put life with a whole new drive and has changed the selfishness and has changed the egotisticalness and all of those kind of negative things that I had as traits into, you know, such positivity. He's just the light of my life, definitely. 
the highest of all highs. So he'll be in the roller coaster cart with you. Most definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> driving it. Or mummy will be driving it right off the roller coaster and probably to God knows where at 1,000 miles an hour. But that's Jodi for you. This has just been the most gorgeous of conversations. And I think that so many people are going to learn well, I want to just say having balls, being brave and having balls and going for it. Yeah, It's that time of the podcast, though, that I'm going to hand over to you because I know that you've prepared a letter to your younger self. I have. I don't know what it's going to say, but I just want to thank you, Jodie, for giving us your time today. It's been an utter pleasure. Well, thank you. So it's going to be so funny when I read this, you'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's like I've literally been writing it as we've been talking. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Dear Jodie, gosh, what a letter to write and what a life you have in front of you. So many ups and downs, successes and failures, and many, many lessons to learn. You're one hell of a ballsy bird. But I've got a few reminders I would love to tell you in those moments. And you will know what I mean when I say those moments. Is always keep believing in yourself, even when you're so low and life is just giving you such a kicking that it will get better. The strengths you gain from these moments make you who you are. Keep being kind to everything. And remember that saying, everyone you meet on the way up, you will meet on the way back down. Treat everyone as equals, as everyone has their own story, which you don't necessarily know. Keep living life to the maximum. Live every day as if it's your last, as one day it really will be. We have a short time on this incredible planet, so love it, look after it, nurture it, as it will you. Remember your peace and calmness comes from nature and the creatures that we share this beautiful planet with. They will need you. As we have made many mistakes and we've taken too much from this planet and we are having to act quickly as a species to save all the things around us. So be conscious and mindful of that and maybe you can drive change earlier than I did. Use your power and early fame for positivity and drive rather than hiding from it as I know you'll have a hard time around your early fame. Don't hide from it, use it. Keep pushing yourself. Keep believing in yourself. You can hit that golf ball just as far as the boys. You can ride horses just as fast as the guys. And you can drive and race cars just as quick as the men. Keep inspiring women. Keep giving and keep going. You've got this. One love, sister. P.S. Take that 50 quid from Dougie and memorise Roger Kipling's If, as it has so many references to your life now, which I'll read to you. So, Roger Kipling's If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give away to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master and if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, 
if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch of neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you. If all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that is in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Or a woman. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so beautiful, isn't it's it? Just, it's so beautiful <sighs> and I've never heard it in relation to how you have presented it to us today Aww. with the idea of building and being brave and being humble. Yeah. How beautiful, Jodie. Thank you awesome. so much for that letter and for that, that reading. I admire you very much for your lust for life yeah you have a lust for life and a light <laughs> yeah. and you don't let anything and anyone stop you and you have a true appreciation that we haven't got much time and that's what I'm going to take away from this so bless you for thank you giving me that reminder <laughs> so thank you, you Jodie thank you so much <laughs> sorry I've like rabbited on for so long you've probably been the longest podcast ever <laughs> before you go if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. With thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.